Mark 6, and no, we're not going to the dungeons of Hogwarts, but we're going to the dungeons of King Herod's, uh, King Herod's palace. Mark 6, Jesus left there, that is the place that he was at just before all of this, and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get this, these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him, and he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over, over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he's Elijah. Still others claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she wasn't able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse her. 
So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. And on hearing of this, John's disciples came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we began this series of sermons on Mark, you will note that in chapter 1, verse 1, we read these words. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if you are reading through this gospel as, uh, if you're reading through this gospel, as per the suggestions on the bookmark that's available at the um, Welcome Center, then you will note that this book is indeed all about Jesus. And Mark seems to go out of his way to answer the question, who is this Jesus? Just perusing the titles put in by the editors of the New International Version Bible, it's striking how many of the titles include the name of Jesus. And I challenge you to go through the whole book and, and, and look at them all. The baptism and temptation of Jesus. Jesus drives out an evil spirit. Jesus heals a paralytic. Crowds follow Jesus. Jesus predicts his death. Jesus arrested. Jesus before Pilate and so on. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. This is indeed the story of the good news about Jesus and the answering of the question as to who he is, son of God, son of man. This is a book about the very one whom Emma and Adam made their profession today. This is a book about the one who made the new covenant in his blood of which we were reminded through the sacrament of baptism. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. Reading the first chapters of Mark are exciting and wonderful. Oh, sure, there are a few challenges to Jesus from the religious leaders, creating a little bit of negativity as you begin to read. But reading the first chapters, we hear of healings and evil spirits being cast out and disciples being called, and Jesus spending time with sinners or outcasts. When you begin to read Mark in the first five, five chapters or so, you, you discover that this Jesus that Mark is talking about is refreshing. And he has an incredible ability to turn things upside down. Jesus is worth paying attention to. He's worth following. Then you come to chapter 6, and right off the bat, there's a little bit of a fly in the ointment, so to speak, because now we read a, a story of Jesus' seeming, any, seeming inability to do any miracles and wonders in his own hometown. The lack of acceptance and the lack of faith was, was that strong, even to the point where it amazed Jesus. 
But very quickly, that story is overshadowed by the story of Jesus sending out the 12 disciples in pairs to do this, exactly the same thing that he was doing, preaching, healing the sick, freeing people from demonic possession. And that's exactly what they did. Look at verse 12. They drove out many demons and anointed. They went out and preached what, that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Amazing stuff was happening. Praise God. Who wouldn't want to follow this? Jesus and all the miraculous things he is able to do. Everything Jesus was presenting himself to be was evidently, was evident not only through what he did, but now also through what the disciples were doing in his name. It's an amazing story so far. But now stop. We're flying along, enjoying the ride, but now there is this interjection of a gruesome story. In the midst of all these wondrous stories about Jesus, Mark in chapter 6, verse 14 and following seems to do something odd. He tells us a rather gruesome, downer sort of story that's not even directly about Jesus. In fact, there are only two passages in the entire Gospel of Mark that are not directly about Jesus. Only two. Everything else is about Christ. The two that are not are both about John the Baptist, as he is known. The first passage is right off the bat in chapter 1, where we are told that John came as the herald of Jesus. At the naming ceremony for John, his father, Zechariah, sang concerning John, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you'll go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Quite the job description. John was to be the announcer, the herald, the town crier, proclaiming, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was to be the last of the Old Testament prophets born and raised to prepare people for the coming of Jesus and then upon his coming to shine the spotlight on Jesus and away from himself, which is precisely what he did as he preached a gospel, a baptism of repentance on the banks of the Jordan River. And so as Mark begins his gospel, we hear about John fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah and preaching at the Jordan River. I baptize you, I wash you, I cleanse you with water, but he, the one that is coming, the Messiah, he will baptize or wash or cleanse you with the Holy Spirit. We saw a little of that this morning as we witnessed water baptism and then others professing their faith in Jesus responding to that baptism. And so Mark begins his gospel by introducing us to John the Baptist, the herald, the forerunner of Jesus. But the second story, not directly about Jesus, is the story we read in chapter 6. A story all about the death of John. A story that seems almost out of character with Mark's writing, at least out of character with the first part of the book, because it's rather detailed. And it's not about Jesus. Jesus. 
as such. And so all of that begs the question, if Mark is so intent on telling us the story of Jesus, if he's so intent, intent on telling us who Jesus is, why is the story of John's death then included here and told in such great detail? Lord, things are going along well. We're preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons. Why the sudden change in this gruesome story? And why here? I don't know about you, but every time I read this story about John, I cannot help but feel badly for him. And I cannot help but wonder concerning the events that led to the end of his life. Here was a man who had been given to the world for a very specific reason and purpose, to announce and proclaim the coming of the Messiah. And by all accounts, he did an admirable job. He set the whole nation of Israel on edge. He challenged anyone and everyone who came within earshot. He challenged the Jewish religious establishment, ordinary people, tax collectors, soldiers, even the royal household of Herod. No one fell outside of his scrutiny. Of course, no one falls outside God's scrutiny. And he said it like it is. He never minced any words. One day he called the crowd who came to hear him, you brood of vipers. That should entice people to come and listen some more. If I called you that, you'd probably walk out the door or council will have a few things to say. You brood of vipers. John was never one to back down from a challenge, never one to be afraid of anyone, and it was that approach to ministry that got him killed. For one of the people that he repeatedly challenged was Harold Antipas, the proconsul, a Roman governor of the occupied territory of Israel. And the challenge concerned Herod's marriage to Herodias. John saw that relationship as a direct violation of God's law as spelled out in Leviticus 18.16. The Lord had said, do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Now, it's true, there's all kinds of provisions in the law in Deuteronomy 25 to take a brother's wife after his death to preserve an inheritance and continue the family line, but that's not applicable here at all. Herodias had a husband. His name was Herod Philip, and he was still quite alive, thank you. Herod Antipas also had a wife. The history books record that Herod Antipas, on a visit to his brother Herod Philip, had become infatuated with Herodias, his sister-in-law. It must have been mutual because the two agreed to separate from their spouses and marry. And Herodias brought a daughter, later identified as Salome, into the relationship. Oh, the tangled webs we weave, and oh, the mess that they create. Now, John kept telling Herod and warning Herod that it wasn't right for him to have his brother's wife. After all, the relationship was incestuous, and both he and Herodias were committing adultery. And the prophet called for repentance on the part of both. Yes, the word of the Lord also spoke to the leadership of the land. No one is outside of God's purview. 
Herodias, who was apparently quite a powerful and ambitious woman, was not too thrilled with John's message. In fact, she didn't want to hear it. She hated to have her conscience pricked on a regular basis. So to satisfy Herodias, Herod had John arrested and put in prison, but that wasn't good enough for Herodias. Mark tells us in chapter 6, verse 19, she nursed a grudge against John and, and wanted to kill him. For Herodias figured that if John would be dead, then at least she could live in peace. And she couldn't, wouldn't have to be constantly reminded of the sinfulness of the situation. So she schemed against John. How little she understood of God's ways. Herod, meanwhile, had taken somewhat of an interest in John. Apart from everyone around him, most of whom were yes-men out of fear for their lives, John was different. At least with him, Herod knew where he stood. And apparently he liked to listen to the prophet speak in spite of the fact, as the Bible tells us, that much of what John said really puzzled Herod. But he also protected John, Mark tells us. Because he knew him to be a righteous and a holy man, a man of God. And even though Herod was not a true believer in the true God of Israel, nonetheless he seemed to have some sort of respect for John, possibly a fear of John's God, and more likely a twinge of guilt, probably, about what he had done. But Herod did not bow down in humble confession of his sin and guilt. Instead, his heart seemed to grow harder, which led him to his ruthless oath at a birthday party. Years earlier, you may remember from the context of Psalm 51, years earlier there was another adulterous king in the person of David. And he had bowed down in humble confession of his sin once he had been confronted, and then he experienced the Lord's awesome forgiveness. But that was not the case with Herod. His non-confession his non-owning up to his sinfulness gave him absolutely no peace in life. You know, that's really what happens to unconfessed sin. It festers and it destroys. Well, the day of Herod's birthday party came, and he was together with all his nobles, which was exactly the opportunity that Herodias was looking for, Salome's dance pleased the probably incredibly drunk king so much so that he made a rash vow in the presence of all his guests that Salome could have whatever she wanted, even up to half his kingdom. That would never happen, really. But it sounds really generous. What a king! His generosity was noted by all the nobles and by all his guests. Salome went to her mother and asked Herodias what she should ask for, and Herodias, without hesitating, it seems, said, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The head of John the Baptist on a platter, no less. Much like the other slaughtered animals were available on platters for all to eat on the party, at the party. Herod was horrified, but stuck because he had made vows 
and he had a room full of guests, and he wanted to be generous. And so he sent the executioner, and before long, the head of John the Baptist was given to Salome and Herodias. Their enemy was dead. John had been faithfully preaching about the kingdom of heaven. He had heralded the coming Messiah. What was his reward? Prison and execution, which no one, not even Jesus, tried to prevent. In fact, Mark tells us in Mark 1, verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Where in the world was the good news for John? From an earthly perspective, from our perspective, this whole story seems so strange, so out of place, so incredibly senseless. John's imprisonment and subsequent death seems like such a waste of talent. He was a powerful preacher who set all kinds of people on edge and had the attention of all of a whole nation. He could have done so much for the kingdom. Think of a team, John and Jesus. This is the dream team. The two of them, look what they could have accomplished. Maybe if John hadn't meddled in royal affairs, maybe it would have, if he would have... If he would have adhered to that strict distinction between church and state, perhaps he would have escaped the executioner's sword. But John carried out what he had come to do, herald the Lord Jesus Christ and proclaim the coming of the kingdom. It's interesting that this story of John's death follows the story of the sending of the 12 disciples with the good news of Jesus. It seems that Mark wants to make a direct connection between prophets being rejected by their own hometown to the reality that was and is going to face the 12 who were sent out in pairs, to the reality that faced John the Baptist, to the reality that faced even Jesus and anyone who follows him or that preaches the good news in their hometown or elsewhere. That's a sobering thought. Even today, those who profess their faith, as Emma and Adam did this morning, need to understand. All of us who profess Christ need to understand and expect that what happened to the master will happen to the servants and the children of that master as well. Persecution, death, is a reality that we face. And that's because many in this world do not see the good news as good news. On the contrary, they see the good news, supposed good news, as a challenge to their own gods, or to their sinful lifestyle, or to their rebellion against the Creator. And they're happy in that sinfulness and in that rebellion and with their own gods, and they don't really want to face the true God. Herodias, Salome, and Herod had, had John's head served up on a platter, a gruesome sight, no doubt, for all the guests. And they figured that was the end. 
They figured that John and his message had been silenced. Oh, how wrong they were. And how little did they understand about the kingdom of heaven. The forerunner was dead, yes. The preparations for Jesus' ministry had been finished. But John's death was a shadow of the way in which the kingdom is established. You see, the kingdom of God is established not through might or by power, by the sword, or by intimidation, or buying your way in, or any of those things, but the kingdom of God is established through dying. As we were reminded of again in the sacrament of baptism, we are dead and buried with Christ. It is precisely, it was precisely through Jesus' death that victory was gained also for John. Now for many, that's a really odd way of building a kingdom. It's odd. You don't build a kingdom by dying. You build a kingdom by living. But God's kingdom is built by dying to self and rising in Christ. Maybe we have some sympathy for John, whose final days were so miserable and whose life ended so abruptly and in such a gruesome manner. It seems like such an anticlimactic end to such an important life, but I suspect that John, in spite of his doubts about and his questions about who Jesus was, I suspect that John would not have us sympathize with him, but rather that he would have us look at the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This story, John would have us know, this story, like the one at the beginning of Mark's gospel, may be about me, but really it's not about me. It's about Jesus. Look to him and live. I'm not even worthy to untie the laces on his shoes, John had once said. Don't look at me. But look at Christ, who died, who rose again, and who lives, and whose kingdom is established. Christ must have preeminence in all things. He must come first. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is a gospel of life. It begins with death. Amen. Amen.